Hi, and welcome to the Days Gone podcast. I'm Claire Weaver, a screenwriter, author, and Days Gone fan, and this podcast is a place to discuss the game in all its glory, share my opinions, both popular and unpopular, and listen to me fangirl over one of the best games ever made. There will be spoilers ahead, so continue at your own risk. Welcome to The Freak Show. Before we get started, I have a couple quick reminders. Weekdays at 8 a.m. Mountain Time, you can watch me livestream my Days Gone playthrough. I take on hordes, talk shit about rippers, and lay waste to ambush camps, all before I've had my morning cup of coffee. You can find me on my YouTube channel, just search for Days Gone Podcast. I'm also a guest on the Spornicus Rex YouTube channel on Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Mountain Time. We're currently playing through one of my favorite franchises of all time, the Uncharted Games. And an announcement, the Days Gone community now has a Discord server. Please come hang out and join the conversation. All right, let's get into it. In this very special episode, I am elated to be talking with none other than the director of Days Gone, Jeff Ross. Hi, Jeff. How are you doing today? Good, Claire. It's nice to be here. Thanks. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast. Oh, this no, no. It's, amazing. it's my pleasure. My pleasure, 100%. So you must be sick of talking about Days Gone by now. Is this just going to be a high and by and we're done? <laughs> you know, um, no, I'm not sick of it, but also I am sick of it at the same time. You know, certain, at a certain point you have to move on with your life and, and everything. And, and I have, but um, I, I do think that there's still some kind of insights and lessons and kind of, you know, some things that we learned along the way that, you know, you know, might be interesting to somebody or maybe even helpful for some people if they're kind of at certain parts of their career or stuck in a mode of development. So, uh, no, I love talking about it, but I love um, talking about it a lot less these days because <laughs> it's been three years and, you know, we I've moved on for a while. But it still holds a really special place in my heart, so I'm, I'm happy to chat about it whenever. Yeah, and it was uh, six years, seven years in the making. Seven, yeah. Seven, wow. I know it's, it's so insane. From, in, you know, to say it's it's a full seven years on Days Gone is 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 a bit un, is a bit false. But we started um, kind of in March of 2012, I believe. Uh, it was right after um, Golden Abyss came out, and you know, for for nearly a year, I would say about eight to nine months, we spent time just kind of churning through ideas you know there were all kinds of ideas for the type of type of game that we would make next and um you know none of them were really were taking we had a, we had some pretty good traction on a on like a procedural horror game and then it turned out that uh you know uh, until dawn I, I keep getting the name screwed up you know until dawn was going to come out and so we're like oh that's you know there's some portfolio issues uh then we created this machine kind of robot city game and then there was horizon <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of so it was really tough to find something that that um that we liked and we felt was in our wheelhouse that was also something that didn't clash with a portfolio so mm. um you know which is kind of weird too because you know one of the things uh you know the things about days gone is is it's very it's inadvertent but it it's heavily influenced by last of us you know like a, you can just tell that the there's a there's a lot diff, you know a lot of things that are completely unique and different about each game but there's, you know, just some aesthetic things that kind of, and, in, in, you know, that kind of make them very, uh, you know, very similar enough to, in, in, a, in a weird way for the same publisher to have them both. And I think that uh, at the time it wasn't apparent to everybody that that's what that was going to be. But I, I think, uh, you know, ultimately that's why the sequel probably got put on the back burner. I mean, honestly, that's probably the nature of the genre that you have. I mean, you're, you're, 
I know they're not zombies, but it's the zombie genre. And same as The Last of Us is like, they're the infected, but they're still essentially, it's the zombie yep. subgenre of horror. So you have things like tropes and, and ways of articulating that genre that you have to hit for it to live in that genre. So there are going to be similarities to other games, um, but Days Gone has its own voice, has its own Absolutely. style. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, no, and I contend that. Uh, I'm just saying, superficially, it's easy to kind of you know c- compare it to the other one. But no, right. there's there's a there's a lot different there. And you know, uh, The Last of Us one is one of my all time favorite games, and two is just brilliant. So it's a uh, it's good company to be in, <laughs> you know. And, and <laughs> yeah, yet vastly, vastly different game loops for sure. Right, right. Yeah. yeah, it's never a bad day when you're compared to The Last of Us. Yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> Uh, so before we get kind of too into the weeds with Days Gone specifically, I want to talk about the job of game director. Um, what exactly does that entail? Because it sounds very grandiose, very all-encompassing, but what do you, what, how would you describe it? Yeah, it, it's definitely not all-encompassing. And with most jobs in this industry, there's no one definition that works across studios and across titles. So um, for for Bend Studio, what it meant at the time that I was there, um, and, and I was the first game director for the studio. It had historically been just creative and technical director. Uh, and when we started Days Gone, we were at about um, six designers. And when we, at our peak, we were at 28. So um, basically, and I was just a senior, uh, you know, as a senior designer on the team when we started this. And um eventually got promoted to lead and we promoted another person to co-lead and we, we kind of ran the game for a while. But what really started to happen was the as the team grew and as the project got much more massive, we really needed to kind of like create a professional workforce, you know, take the design team and bring it up to, you know, mm-hmm. grow it, but also, you know, start to find people who can become leaders or managers and kind of help guide. And um, so for me, it was a, it was a parallel game side direction where I'll get to that in a minute, but the other half of it was full-time design management of up to 28 designers on the studio. And um, for so on, on that end, what I did was kind of come in and looked at how art was working. And I'm like, well, you know, design just has a department. <laughs> it just says designers, but art, they've got animators, they've got riggers, they've got, you know, they've got tech art, they've got all these kind of sub-disciplines that really make a lot of sense and kind of help people understand the role of, of, of each kind of sub-team or what people bring. And, you know, it, it, that just made perfect sense to kind of emulate a form of that. And, you know, we created, we already had some of the key members of all, of all these teams, but, but I just formalized everything and said, all right, we have a technical design team and they're responsible for this. We have the mission design team and they're responsible for this the open world team. And then we have the systems and gameplay teams and uh, the, oh, the narrative design too. So, you know, just kind of doing that you know, was, was pretty galvanizing because now we had people who were leads in charge of these things. And so they went from, it just kind of went from this um, kind of like college buddy, you know, uh, kind of weekend game jam mindset to, oh no, this is, you know, we're all professionals now. We have to really kind of we're responsible for people. Uh, we're responsible for deadlines and have to hit them. So there was that part of it. And it's, and it's actually one of the things I'm kind of most proud about my work on, on Days Gone was doing that because it was a, it in and of itself was a, a more than a full-time job, just doing that. But then mm-hmm. on the other side, I had to do this game direction where um, it the job of game director in this context was Garvin's got a vision, you know, and, and I, I kind of helped him shape that. I'm, I've always been a very close confidant for him, but you know, you know, you can, you can kind of, 
you can feed it, fill his head with a lot of information and then hope he takes some of your advice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he does, but he's he's got a pretty strong vision unto himself. But um, you know, we we had this strong vision from from John. He'd written. I think pretty much all of the, the cinematics and most of the missions, even before I was game director. So, you know, I had to kind of just look at it and say, all right, how the hell am I going to make a game out of all this? How are we going to break it down? How are we going to, how are we going to kind of achieve this scale? And um, I really kind of, I, I do um, kind of equate it to there's the architect of a house and then there's the con like the general contractor who goes off mm. and builds it, you know? And um, I think that's probably still the best way to describe that relationship. And, you know, and, and certainly at the start of the project, he's, you know, he's busier than I am, but as the project goes on, we kind of like cross paths and then, and then while I'm finishing the game, he gets to go on press tours and stuff like that. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, while I'm stuck there trying to work on the day one patch. And he's talking up all the amazing things that you're still like tearing your hair out. Like, we, we can't, I don't know how to get that done. How are we going to pull this <laughs> Absolutely. off? <laughs> you said that John had a vision for it. I, I want to talk a little bit about the origins of Days Gone and how it was originally envisioned and, and how it was pitched. What was the starting point for the game? You know, I I, I, I can't remember the the one moment, but because there were a series of kind of, there, there were a series of, you know, discrete events that kind of built towards what it was. And I think after about nine months after assuming those other prototypes, like we, you go back to 2012 and the, you know, Walking Dead was still king. Sons of Anarchy mm. was still kind of like king on, on, on TV. And they were shows that we were watching. And um, all I knew was uh, I wanted to make an open world zombie game. That was, first of all, I wanted to make an open world game. And I convinced them to do that. And uh, then zombies, because hell yeah, I'm having so much fun watching this show. Wouldn't it be cool to kind of like, when they're in the prison and they have to decide, you know, they're living in the prison, they've got their day stuff. And then they realize they have to go out and search for resources, accomplish some goals. And then they bring the shit down on the prison and their community as a result. And I'm like, that's an open world game loop of some sort. Like that's got, you know, there's got to be a way for us to kind of recapture that idea. And um, then at one point when, uh, you know, my office was next to John's, I was in my office and I was, I was trying to figure out what if we're making in, in an open world, how could we be a little bit different, but in a way that is um, attainable for, for us from a scope point of view and looking at Grand Theft Auto, uh, they've got all these vehicles and they're all kind of unique assets and they're all individually tuned and, and pretty good for what they are. But, you know, right away we knew that was out of scope for us. And so I'm like, what can we do to give the player a vehicle that doesn't open up this, this kind of, this, this, uh, this, uh, this mess of all these assets we would need. And, and it dawned on me because we had crafting. I'm like, what if he could build a motorcycle or, or no, build a bike, you know, any type of two wheeled vehicle we would, you know, the game would have been about finding parts for, you know, finding bicycle parts, finding car parts, truck parts, and, you know, they would all be kind of suited to crafting into, a, you know, a, from a pedal bicycle, to, you know, to all the way up to a motorcycle. And at about the same time, I sat down to talk with John and he's like, I think we should make this a biker game. And I'm like, yeah, that's what I'm talking about. And he's like, no, <laughs> Sons of Anarchy biker. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, well, you know what I was just thinking about in my office was this. So it was like a kind of, you know, we, we both had the same idea generally at the same time and kind of, you know, I think that that was pretty galvanizing. It was something yeah. that really kind of told us like, you know, it, it was a chocolate peanut butter moment. It's like you came in with the gameplay point of view of, of how are we navigating the world while John is sitting there coming up with a who's the main character kind yep. of point of view, like who who is this about? And the two just, like you say, the chocolate and peanut butter, the perfect combination just kind of clicked. Yeah. Wasn't there at some point a decision tree structure to the game? 
There was. And, you know, we, uh, yeah, I, I think even up to one year um, before we came out, we had that Game Informer, there was this Game Informer hour-long playthrough, the first part of the game, and there were a couple choice moments in there that... Um, were things we were we thought that they you know we thought that they were going to be good and or was something that we could ship with, but um, really what happened was as we played it and I started to kind of tune you know these these fifteen events in the game that uh, would be inputs into the you know what the system was going to go somewhere you know there were you were making these decisions and it was going to have an outcome and that outcome was Boozer was going to die. If if uh, his emotional you know ebb and flow if it if it was if it it uh, was too ebby you know at the mm-hmm. end so um, great idea you know fi- you know a way to and it would have been great if we could have hit it but the uh, the real problem was there was no way to really frame the choices in a way where the players could even perceive this dire out you know this this really shitty potential outcome and it, you know we've. You, we just kind of figured and no, we didn't get UX feedback saying this, this was John and I really kind of just hashing it out saying, you know, are we going to piss people off too much by giving them this power, but not teaching them how to use it or explain Mm. what it is. And then it's going to have this real bummer of an outcome. And the way that I was tuning it was, wasn't like Boozer was going to die. If you um, failed, it was more like, no, Boozer is going to die unless you succeed. It, it, you know, it kind of, you know, dominating the system. That was the against all odds. You could maybe have him live. Uh, but the chances are greater that he would die. Yeah, we we're totally hoping for that. You know, since this would have been the one, di- one kind of the one dynamic element of it, 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 um, we were really looking forward to the water cooler things where people, everybody knows Boozer died, but then the one guy's like, "What are you guys talking about? Like he's, he, he lived. He's with me at Lost Lake now after the game. <laughs> what did you guys do? You know, just that kind of water cooler moment. The Reddit, churn, you know, the stuff that Reddit would churn on forever. Mm. You know, we were we were going for that, but it was just we had weak inputs. We, you know, um myself and John, uh, you know, we had a lot of ideas and we put them in, but they just weren't, they weren't weighty enough in their sum total to kind of lead to that type of result. So it was a very, it was a very tough thing to remove for us. And if the public had never seen that first hour play, they never would have known, but you know, in the, in right. the game would have been fine, but that was us trying to do something special and unique, but also then being very mindful of the community and the integrity of the story. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like you almost would want more than just two outcomes, more than just, you know, binary. If you're going to give people that power of making decisions, you kind of want it to be ridiculously complicated and have lots of different outcomes, but that changes the nature of the game. It it, it does, but that's still still a a viable game that somebody can make someday. And Mm -hmm. it's something where in order for us to, to have pulled this off, we would have needed. And, you know, if we, if, if I could go back eight years or nine years, however long ago it was when we started, it would have been about building that kind of that uh, that world of a bunch of choices that the player is making, so that the prominent key choices are kind of masked by the others. When you get one choice and it matters, you're you know you know you're, you're going to choose the best option. But what the what the uh, Telltale games have shown me is you know just have the player respond. Not everything you know give give the player a chance to express themselves. And not everything has to pay off with big drastic changes. It can just pay off with a line of dialogue later, or, or sometimes even 
not paying off at all, but in the moment, giving me some tension that kind of makes me, it, that engrosses me in their story further. So I'm a huge fan of those games. And I think that, yeah, you can't just dip your foot in the water. You have to dive all the way in if you're going to, if you're going to try something like that. Yeah. What were some of the other stages of development ideas that were, you know, thrown away early on? Can you talk a little bit about the development process of the game? Yeah. Um, it's, it's so long ago. I can't, I can't even remember. Um, you know, we honestly didn't throw away a lot of stuff. Um, we probably should have, um, obviously the game was pretty big, but I think that that's one of the cooler wait, parts. Wait, 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 wait. I have to stop you there. No, probably should have. No, you should not throw in any of it. Like it's perfect. Don't, yeah, don't and, say and that. Claire, the game, <laughs> the game spoke to you really well. And then I love that, that, that uh, you, you did that. It didn't speak to everybody that way. And kind of one of the things I think, uh, um, again, if I had this, this wonderful time machine, you know, we really would have gone back and tried to figure out a way to tighten up episode one to make sure that people can get to the kind of the really significant story stuff at Lost Lake. But um, it was our first game. It was our first open world game that was this big. And it, to the scope, I totally, um, I stand by my statement, but I also love the Bollywood aspect of it. I really feel like Days Gone is this huge Bollywood, just insanely big. And when you think it's over, it keeps going and it's kind of epic and it's kind of got, you know, not every moment is, you know, it is a... Uh, they're not all even, but uh, yeah, no, I, I love the size and the scope of it, but I think it could have had a better commercial land or critical landing if um, if it had a tighter kind of episode one, I think. So, in, and they say that you cut your way towards a better score in games, and, and I do think that that's true, but uh, we did cut some stuff, but I don't think anything key, and, and partially because for the first three years, we didn't even know what the game was in terms of kind of like, we're like, yeah, we're making an open world zombie game, we got all the story stuff, but the... Um, kind of figuring out what the identity of our game's open world would be was really kind of paramount to me. And um, I'd convinced the studio to make an open world game, uh, you know, predicated on the idea that making a rural, you know, a game set in a rural location, we didn't have to build up as much geometry and points of interest and city structures. We could just kind of use the landscape and show, you know, show mother nature. That would, that would be easier to make than the same amount of square footage for cities. So, um, Convince them to do that. Convince them it should be zombies. But I had no idea what the game was going to be. Like, that's one of those things where you be careful what you wish for because you might get it. And then I'm like, <laughs> what, 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 what is this? So I was just driving through our world all the time trying to think about like, all right, if I'm in this position, in, in this role of this character, what would I be afraid of? What would I be expecting? What would I be trying to do? And, and that was the start of the dangerous world kind of thing. And I didn't come up with that phrase. Somebody else did. This but world comes for you. This world comes for you. The dangerous world. It, it was this thing that, um, you know, I, I forget who coined it. It might've been marketing or it might've been Garvin, but it was trying to kind of describe what this, this idea was, which was really find a way to um, capture the, and deliver on the fantasy of, a zombie fan, just like I was for The Walking Dead. Like if, you know, if, if you would give me a Walking Dead game that was open world and it started at the prison, I mean, I'd give you everything I had, like all my money, you could have it because that's the game I want to play. There's a core fantasy there. But then once you, once I'm playing this game, I'm going to want helicopters flying overhead that have mysteries that lead to them. I'm going to want a governor creature to, you know, character to kind of introduce himself and have the politics of these cross camps, the, you know, the, these two camps in the same region. And um, so kind of using that lens, driving through the world, I'm like, well, what would happen? And then I, I started listening to some uh, Daisy uh, stories, you know, people that people were having on Daisy where they would, you know, people would come across other people in multiplayer and they would, um, they would kidnap them. They would abduct them and they would use the tools that the game had. Like you could use zip ties on people. And they were really just kind of LARPing 
uh, is what they were all were doing because the, the prisoner could have run, but he willingly kneeled and let them kind of you know handcuff him mm-hmm. and, and become their prisoner. And I think they were stuffing fruit down his throat at some point. Like it was just, I'm like, yeah, people. That's what people do in the apocalypse. <laughs> you know, we, <laughs> we we get awful really fast, and and that be, that started to become kind of like the identity to me for what I thought our open world would be, which was people being mean to other people, uh, you know, in a, in a, it, like they would in the, in the apocalypse. And we were, we didn't even go that far with what, you know, with what people would really do. So um, kind of that, that lens, it brought me to um, the open world ambushes. The, the ambushes were this thing where uh, it was, you know, the clothesline and the sniper rifle uh, were the were really the only two ideas that I had. And it, it was something where everybody hated it. Uh, you know, some people were open to it, but in general, it was the opposite of what you should do in a game. You, you know, you don't take the player off his bike. You know, you, you don't, don't randomly off piss off the player by yeah, throwing and, uh, events at them that uh, could. And that, that's kill what people were arguing. And you know, my whole take was like, for us to stand apart, we're going to have to go. You know, we basically we have to go big. We, you know, we can't compete with we can't compete with Ubisoft. We can't compete with Rockstar. So for us to go big, we have to go big in things that are different. You know, mm. the small things, the things that other games aren't doing. And and that's why the, the open world ambushes and kind of the spawning system there, it it's built to kind of keep the, you know, lull the player into this sense of complacency. Like, oh, yeah, I haven't been attacked in a while. Things are pretty good. And but then every now and then they would get attacked once once they kind of stop thinking about the threats. And th- what that built was this really great tension. When mm-hmm. you when you run out of gas on your bike and you have to run to get some gas, like whether something happened or whether something didn't happen on, on the journey, the fact that you couldn't save the game unless you were at your bike meant that you were going off and you you were in it was very dangerous for you to try anything out here and you were super afraid, but you knew you needed to do it to get your gas and bring it back. And uh, you know, it's just in it what I learned with Days Gone was like tension is one of the the people talk about fun. Fun is just a feeling that, could, that has a lot of different kind of characteristics to it. And I think that tension is a feeling, <laughs> you know, therefore uh, it's fun, you know, if that's what people are looking for. And really the ambushes were, in, helped us do that. Um, the, and then the team came up with some other ones like the, uh, the, the, the burning car one, the uh, IEDs um, and, and other things. So um, yeah, that, that was kind of the inspiration was like just driving around thinking like, okay, well, a, I'm on the hook to figure this out, but B, you know, as a fan of this genre of game, uh, what would I want to see? What haven't I seen something else do? Or is there a way that I can take something that's been done before and kind of remix it for, give it a kind of new flavor for our game? That, that was my design philosophy and, and kind of thought process. I, I mean, I think you absolutely fucking nailed it. I think it was amazing. It's That's one of the things that make the gameplay for me one of the best games I've ever played, if not the best game I've ever played. It's the fact that the world is out to get you and it is very random. I was having a conversation on Discord earlier today with some of my gaming friends. This one guy had found by the Rogue Camp gas station, they found an abacus sitting on top of, uh, I think it was like one of the gas pumps or something. And he was like, it's my sixth playthrough. How have I never seen this abacus sitting there before? And and when I went up to it, my controller started buzzing. And I was like, dude, no, 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 no. That's a trap. That's a trap. Those are like, you're going to like investigate it and then follow the little footprints and get, you know, strung up in a snare and someone's going to steal all your weapons. He'd never experienced that before or he'd never seen it at that point. And it's like, every time you play, you find something new. There's like some new 
tripwire setup or some new place where the snipers are hanging out. Or my favorite one is down by the Patchens Lake. If you leave your bike on the road to go off and fight the horde, you come back and there's always some little fucker messing with your bike. Someone sabotaging it right there. Or your bike just gets knocked over by a deer or a freak or something random when you're not looking. And as you're running back to your bike away from the horde, and you get out, it's like, oh no, something's knocked over my bike. I get so mad. I love it. It pulls you in because it feels, it doesn't feel overdone. It's not too often that it's just mean. It's like the game's just being mean to me and wants me to fail. It's rare enough that it feels like it's just part of the world. Like, yeah, this is a fucked up world. And if you're out in the shit, anything could happen. Yeah, and I would have loved, uh, you know, for a sequel or even for this game too, because I think all that stuff is true. And um, it re- by not front and centering it, but not by kind of like making drawing a lot of attention to these little things, it makes them a little bit more magical in my book because they're they're not part of the, they're not guaranteed to be part of the mainline experience. But for the people that are playing that game, and then they're playing the game, you know, they're grinding or they're playing in the open world, just doing those loops, we wanted to surprise them as, as much as possible, infinitely, uh, kind of just make sure that they were always discovering something. And again, just something to kind of fuel online conversations or water cooler conversations at work. And um, the if, as, as a designer, I, you know, I would say that the systems, what I learned from Days Gone were systems are king. Like if you if you build the right systems and for the right game, then you can almost have like infinite gameplay. You have you can have this infinite open world churn that is compelling and interesting to people. And uh, that gives you the opportunity to kind of put these these little moments in. And like one of them was the the, the freaker that got hit by lightning. And, you know, like that was something that was, it, it was highly scripted, but it was doled out very systemically. And uh, under the conditions, obviously, that, that honored the world, it's, you know, it's on higher, I think it was, I don't know what all the, uh, the filters were, but basically when it's raining and doing thunder, then that's when this event could happen. And once people started seeing that, like they were just going nuts. And, and you know, I really do wish that we had a ton more of that stuff. But for the first entry in the game, it's still kind of a, a respectable um, kind of declaration of like, yeah, this is the type of game it is. This is the type of stuff it does. And, you know, if we if we had a sequel, there would be more of this. Yeah. Yeah. Were there some things that you wanted to put in specifically that you couldn't for some reason? You know, I think that uh, I, I'm pretty, pra- I'm a pretty pragmatic designer. Uh, it's one of my strengths and weaknesses, I think sometimes. <laughs> so I'm, you know, when I'm not trying to put it in the kitchen sink, but there were the, the one thing that, um, that I kept fighting for that I knew was, I, I just knew I wasn't going to get the buy-in from engineering and the studio leadership was co-op. It's like, mm. if we just, you know, if we could find a way to just let two people do this story or shit, just even play the open world together. Some form of that would have been, it would have just been cool to do a horde with a buddy. And, you know, I, I kept saying like, yeah, we should do that. Knowing, you know, I was very cavalier, you know, knowing that we weren't going to do it, but I, I meant it, that it would have been really cool. It would have been the thing that I think took us to the next level would have, you know, kind of helped me, made it. Uh, I'm, I'm just impressed with all the people that play through it over and over and over again, right? Like this would have given them more, op, you know, kind of more opportunities to play it with the people that they like or they love and, and, and have a good time. So probably that, but in general, I'm, I'm a pretty reasonable guy. There's one thing that I, I wanted to bring up that pointedly isn't included in the game uh, or not really rape and sexual assault is very much, there's a couple moments where it's sort of alluded to, um, the mission where you have to go rescue the sisters in the cabin down mm-hmm. by the lake. 
and you see the little flashback of one one of the women being thrown on the bed and then she stabs her attacker and and they both end up dying but there isn't really much in a way of like overt sexual assault rape which is something that would definitely be happening in this brutal world like as you yeah. described the people in this world are bad and mean and horrible to each other was that a conscious decision to not include it is that just a natural decision basically how did it not get included well you know nobody um you know i i talk about the apocalypse and you know the this sounds kind of messed up. I think that there's a fantasy about the apocalypse that we all have. People that want to watch, uh, people like myself who watch The Walking Dead, we have this little inner monologue that says, oh, if I were there, I would do this and I would totally survive. And these guys are idiots and blah, blah, blah. And so for me, that's what I wanted to capture about the apocalypse was the the things that were the interesting direct apocalypse kind of uh, social changes. Yes, sexual assault and rape, we know that will happen right away in re- in real life. It's just, that's what happens. There was no there there for us. There was nothing warm and fuzzy about it as, as an element. There was no social commentary that we wanted, you know, we didn't want to, we couldn't make any social commentary on it. It wasn't our place, you know, a couple of white dudes <laughs> making all these decisions kind of, like it wasn't necessarily our place. All I guess you could argue that that Maybe that should have come from us, but it just wasn't what we were trying to. We weren't trying to make a social, uh, you know, we weren't trying to make a social statement. Um, and I think that if somebody's going to, if a game is going to use those elements, what I would advise is use them in a really powerful, meaningful way. Don't just don't just use them as, as set decoration because I think that kind of normalizes things in a way that that you know kind of makes me sick. And you know, even even this this current um, Supreme Court. A ruling about abortion law. To me, uh, the conversation about it, I'm just shocked at how much we've normalized the idea of uncles raping kids. <laughs> you know, just because that comes up. Oh, if an uncle does that, that happens. It's like, why don't we solve that problem? Like, we, how come we're brushing that aside? Because we've normalized it. Like, yeah, that happens. And um, yeah, is, I just wouldn't want to contribute any any more of that noise or kind of like that that uh, that kind of normalizing data to to such a dark topic. That's a really good answer. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, so my next question is, I, I love how the game encourages you to change your gameplay style as you progress. So you start out like weak and underpowered. You have to rely on stealth and, and a lot of running away. Um, but by the end of the game, you're like a badass motherfucker rocking the MG55 and taking on 500 freaks of the sawmill. How was that structure incorporated into the development of the game? And, and how did you manage to balance it so well? You know, so uh, I, I'm shocked that it, I'm shocked that a lot of things came together really well, because for, for a while it was actually pretty terrifying, <laughs> you know, just because <laughs> we're waiting for systems to come, on, come online that might have taken a year or two. And, you know, the whole while I had to tell people, just wait, it's going to when this when this Lego piece snaps in, it's just going to look, you know, it's going to look glorious. You'll see you'll see the X-Wing that, you know, as you're assembling it, you can't notice. Sorry, that was a weird Lego reference. But um, <laughs> yeah, uh, like I said, I'm still shocked that it kind of came together. But really what it there was a lot of iteration involved and there was um, I kind of had an out, which was this this design pillar, which was sandbox combat. Sandbox combat meant, hey, the player plays it their way. Whatever the player wants to do, we're not going to worry about that. If they, if um, if the player wants to take out a horde by sitting in a bush all day, fine. It's going to take seven hours to do. If that's what they want to do, I'm not going to stand in the way. Uh, you know, it would have been nice to kind of maybe shame them somehow in the game, detect that they're doing that. But um, really, honestly, that was my design philosophy was like, you know, it's an open world. The player can approach any situation from any direction. 
I don't have control over the moments like I used to in our previous linear games. So uh, how that applies to the tuning of the game was um, knowing that there had to be a power curve. Just simply player starts underpowered and at the end he can be dispowered. And then it's, how, you know, how do we, you know, how long does it take to get there? And at which, which point does it kind of really become a, a bounty of riches? You know, or, you know, he's, he's basically, you don't have to get all the guns to be super powerful. At a certain point, you get about half of them and you find the ones that work for you and you're at the top of that power curve. And that power curve is obviously filled out by the stamina and the focus and, and all those other progression elements that kind of made the players stronger. But for the weapons, I just wanted them to choose what worked for them. Like the crossbow. Crossbow is a great weapon. It's a part of the, the fantasy that players have for, for an, an apocalyptic game. But for me, I'm like, oh, yeah, like one bolt every four seconds. Screw that. Uh, you know, give me this big machine gun. And... Um, <laughs> But yet at the same time, our QA guy would go through and defeat a whole horde with just the crossbow. And I'm like, yes, mission accomplished. You did. You, you had a theory. You tested it and it worked out. That's what I'm going for. And so as it applied to tuning, I, I was able to, I, I had to aggressively represent shitty lower, you know, shitty, shittier tuned weapons at the beginning of the game and kind of find a way to narratively help sell them like that, you know, that they're. I forget what we did, but basically we're just saying the weapons you get off of guys are out in the, out in the wild and they are, um, they're basically not tuned very well, but that's what the player has access to. And then after doing enough stuff and getting the trust and credits, then they can start to buy the good guns after they've played the game and appreciated what it was like to not have the good guns. That was really the disparity I was trying to build. And, um, yeah, I, I wish I could tell you exactly how it came together. I built a spreadsheet. I you know, would pull in game data. I would model out a lot of stuff. I would bring QA in and I would just interrogate them about how they're playing the game with these guns, with you know what they thought about these things, and would kind of go back and figure out which tier it had to be in, which camp it had to it had to be in, which which story mission it was given to you as a re, you know, which storyline it was associated with to get it as a reward, and you know really. It, it kind of like the one thing that I do remember is I'm like, okay, end game horde stuff. And that's when we really started to kind of open up. I wanted to make sure by the time players got there that they could start to, you know, they would they'd get a taste of a, of a, of an upgraded gun, but then they would get the, uh, the, the big one. I think it's when I played at, at, at E3 and um, just got lucky, you know, but I guess when you have seven, when you have seven years to tune something, <laughs> it's probably going to come together. <laughs> yeah. Um, how many times have you played the game and do you have a favorite gun? Oh God! Um, I've played the game a lot. Uh, what what I was really shocked by was after I'd finished developing it, and I and I no before that game came out, nobody played the game as much as I had, from, especially from beginning, like contiguously from beginning to end. Um, so I can't even count the hours, thousands. And when it came out, I you, I figured I'd be sick of it. And for every other game I've made, I've never played them after they've come out. You know, I've, I've you know put the disc in and kind of like, oh yeah. Um, but for this one, I didn't just play it. I fucking platinumed it. Like, and, and <laughs> you know, my wife would be like, hey, you're going to come down for dinner. I'm like, just wait. And I, and, I, and I was taking notes. And so like on my own time on weekends for, for weeks afterwards, I was playing the shit out of this game and having a really good time. And, and for me, it kind of turned into comfort food uh, in a lot of ways, just kind of being out in the open world, taking on hordes, uh, just going in any direction, finding something to do, and then trying to survive it was, was a lot of fun because even though my skill level was high, one of the, one of the great things about the horde was is no matter what your skill level is, if you fuck up once, it starts to kind of snowball real quick. And, mm -hmm. and a lot of the fun comes from either dying and then retrying, but it really comes from like barely surviving in a really desperate, scrappy way. And, yeah. and then somehow coming back and prevailing on the horde. And I was experiencing all those loops kind of like a, like 
like somebody who, who hadn't played the game or didn't know how it didn't know anything about it. And honestly, I, I haven't played it for a year. I, I think I, I dabbled a little bit when the PC came out, but what I'm, what I'm really trying to do is I'm like, I'm trying to get like four to five years of separation between me and the game. And if, you know, four or five years of amnesia <laughs> from the last <laughs> time I played, because I would like to see what it feels like for, you know, for somebody who's not that familiar with it, if I could, if, if that's even possible. So um, yeah, I've played it a lot. I, um, Got the platinum. I don't have the. I don't have golds in in challenges because those are insane, and uh, they're 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 brilliant, but they're for kids. Uh, to, you know, I played them all, but to get the get the gold, I'm just not. I'm not that hardcore. Um, so yeah, that's um, that's that. And as far as my favorite gun goes, uh, God, it's the uh, the MG. I, I forget the fifty five. Fifty five. Yeah, but it, it's favorite. that one. I just I get that thing and I fill it full. And one of the cool things is that bike that stash you get on your bike. Is is a total exploit because if you're getting if you're if you're buying ammo for lower level guns, you're actually spending more money on it. But for the higher tier guns, you're actually saving money on the bullet because we just charged you one price for you know because uh, we didn't know what guns you would have on you when you interacted with it. So, it, but it was cool, you know. And once I had that and my MG55, and then I was at the sawmill, and even even me. I kill almost everybody, but then I was out of everything. <laughs> I'm like, all right, I'm going to go ride the bike to Iron Mike's. I went there and I bought stuff and came back and kind of mopped up the horde and everything, which was part of our design intent. And uh, it was, I was experiencing it like somebody who, you know, cause I normally totally obliterate the horde there really quickly, but I, I, I had to kind of break it up into two and, and uh, it, it was fun. And that, that's what we were going for. I want to ask you about the way the missions are kind of stacked sometimes. There's a, a little sequence when you're at Wizard Island where you go on the run for Sarah to get the newt. And then when you come back, um, you get taken out to do the Chamalt Horde. And it doesn't give you chance in between the two to change your loadout. That's annoyed a lot of people. And I wanted to ask you about why it was designed that way and if that was on purpose to annoy people. No, it it, it wasn't on purpose. And, um, you know, on that one, those two scenes were just written in such a way that we couldn't outbox them. And and we, we, at that point, we couldn't go back and redo the cinematics. So I can't remember. I mean, I know that we did it, but it wasn't something I was fighting for or something that we had to do. Um, and then to mitigate that, uh, I think we threw some weapons at the, on the ground at the start of the start of the mission. No designer is proud of doing that, but that was, you know, we did that there. We didn't do that actually in a lot of other missions, but we, we put them there just kind of as a, an apology. So um, I think that that's um, one of the things about Days Gone is the story and missions were written well before we even had usable AI. So, so some of the stuff that doesn't kind of quite land um, is, is sometimes attributed to that. So, um, but the thing that I, that I do regret on the design side for that is not putting a fucking checkpoint somewhere in that mission, <laughs> you know, because if you uh-huh. died, you had to, you had to start all the way back up on the hill. And that was the thing that was uncool to me. But given the philosophy of sandbox combat, you know, I, if this, if I had to do, if I was doing the game over again, and I was in a situation where somebody was proposing a mission where like, all right, take the player and Whatever they have on them at the time, they have on them, and we just give, we just drop them in the shittiest situation possible. I'd be like, "Yeah, uh, that stays gone," um, because you are, you know, you you prepare and you go out, and you know what you prepare is kind of how you determine you want to play the game. And um, if a player, land, you know, I I can't 
presume that the player didn't want those guns, <laughs> you know, or they didn't want that loadout. Um, but the way that the game systems work is they should be able to run from something. They should be able to kite something. They should be able to, uh, you know, find a dead body or find a weapon in a car or, you know, they could, the base the players could kind of like live off the land. They could, they could discover the, the, the land would provide everything that they needed to survive that. But this mission in particular, since it was from one to the next, it, 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 it was, it was a foul on our part. The attention to detail in the game is something I want to talk to you about next. It's absolutely phenomenal how many amazing details are put in there. Obviously, a lot of thought went into it. What are some of the the little details that you found most problematic or, or what are you most proud of? You know, I think uh, I, I am really proud of the fact that we have all that in there. And one of the things... You know, the, the, one of the one of the other things I'm really quite proud of is the the fact that we we launched with a photo mode because I I knew that was going to be super important for these really cool open worlds you know for this game to be able to market itself uh, for people to kind of you know take all these great encounters that they're that they're finding in the world and just share it and then draw more people in so um, it was a struggle near the end to get anything you know to even get our existing plans finished let alone add. Um, you know, a photo mode. But fortunately, we'd we'd hired a new technical designer. He um, he was working on the game and working on on difficulty modes because at one point we weren't going to have difficulty modes just because I was kind of a dick. And uh, but then I came around and realized, okay, we need these. <laughs> so he implemented those and he was done. And he's like, all right, I'm done. What else should I move on to? And I'm like, uh, you have any ideas for photo mode? <laughs> and he's like, uh, Adobe Lightroom. Yeah, that's what I want to do. And I'm like, go do it. That's, you know, that's what we need. So I got him together with a couple, like a technical artist, you know, engineers, adding photo mode actually uh, made engineers realize that the game didn't truly pause. So it would always tick. And, you know, so when you go into the menu, the world would be ticking and kind of some physics would be updating, but not like it was this, it was this really weird state that we kind of, we uncovered that when we were doing photo mode. So that got fixed. Um, and the the tech art team provided some support, but I had this tech designer who kind of he had this vision for it, and he went off and built it. And I, I was one of the things that was keeping me from pushing photo mode was I'm like we need a hook, you know, we need we need a unique hook because that seems to be what every photo mode is doing these days. Like they're going to add Spider Man's going to add stickers to it. Uh, this game's going to do this. So what can we do? And uh, that kind of creating your own filter, adding that advanced edit mode was something that was pretty powerful. And, and it was really cool because we used that tool to author the presets that came with the game. So it was a uh, love the fact that that got created and um, the fact that uh, it revealed all of the really nice touches of the silencer having a hole burst into it once, you know, it's pristine until you fire your first shot. Um, then the having, you know, Deacon's just even Deacon's hands manipulating the controls and his feet on the, on, on the, on the, the clutch and on, on the brakes, it was just in his hand shifting everything. And then even the gun discipline, the trigger discipline were, were things that, um, honestly, um, I didn't ask for the, the animation team just drove it. And, you know, it's, it's something where that's how, that's how development should work is everybody's so invested. They're trying to plus stuff up and, and they did, and it, and it really did pay dividends. And then the environment art team, obviously. You know, if you look in the water, just the amount of detail that's under the water, that's actually a total magic trick is just really impressive. So everybody was really trying to kind of push their, every team was trying to push their field as far as possible and just look for opportunities to, to kind of pitch in their ideas. And, and we took almost everything. It's phenomenal. Another little detail that I didn't even notice until I was researching for this interview is that the, uh, the gas mileage. I talked about this all the way back in episode 12, the drifter bike episode about how gas degrades pretty quickly and the drifter bike gets terrible mileage. 
I found out, and I, I'm actually kind of ashamed to admit that I just found this out, but it's not an oversight. It's actually part of the design. Yeah. Would well, you care to elaborate and explain it to us? So, you know, where we, where we messed up on that, on the messaging of the fuel system was um, not explaining the principle that, that allowed us to do it, which was when we when the world ends and the refineries stop making gas, within two years, we're out of gas. Like it's going to evaporate if we don't use it. It's going to, so it's still there, still kind of, gets going to kind of work, but it's not going to be the best grade of gasoline. It's going to, it's going to be kind of gross. And um, that was my justification for saying, yeah, shitty tuning for, you know, the, you know, shitty gas mileage because of, that's how it is. We didn't message that. <laughs> you know what I mean? And like, you know, that would have really by saying, hey, look, in this world, the gas is evaporating and, you know, but, in, in the gas and in, in the bikes have shitty mileage because man, he's putting them together. Uh, you know, like just setting up that context would have helped people understand it. But one of the, one of the things that if I, if I had that time machine, I talk about one of the things I would do is um, go in and take the, the metric, the, the meter distance to a destination. And I would triple it <laughs> just so people <laughs> because feel like they're traveling further. They, they yeah. feel like they're traveling further. And, and I don't mean that as a way of kind of pulling the wool over their eyes. What it, what it, why I think we could have gotten away with that was basically third person scale is very weird. You know, I think days gone is really only like three miles wide, but it feels much bigger than that. Um, so in my mind, you're covering more ground than the game really says. Um, plus I also needed a starter bike that kind of explained how bad it was it demonstrated how bad this could be. If you didn't take care of it, if you didn't start to do these open world loops and then upgrade your bike. So it was really just, it was kind of like detuned early to really push you into these systems, but also to give you the sense of survival, you know, what, what it would be like in the apocalypse. We're not getting brand new Teslas. Everything's kind of you know, duct taped together. And it, you know, something that depends on gas, which is rapidly evaporating was something that just it made a lot of sense to me. And I wish we could have messaged it better. Yeah. Yeah. When I found that out, it, it blew my mind. I'm like, of course, I don't know why I didn't think about it. It makes perfect sense. It does track. I just assumed that the bike mileage was just a game mechanic. It was the one thing that I was like, well, I'm just assuming that's just what they have to do because it's a video game. And then I read that interview and I was like, oh, no, it does make sense. Yeah. It's just another great detail you put in. You just didn't, like you say, didn't message it quite so well. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that about the bike in general was we knew that the game was going to be kind of special because Mad Max was a vehicle game where you did have to, we, there was some level of fuel management. I played it for like 10 hours. I can't remember what it, what it all was, but what in doing days gone, kind of giving the player the one bike for us, that meant, okay, no more of this disposable shit from Grand Theft Auto, uh, you know, and that stopped us from doing stuff like uh, basically using the motorcycle to put a bomb on and drive it into a group of people. I'm like, no, you wouldn't do that to your baby. Like, you know, like it's a, a biker has a special relationship with his bike. They just don't do it. Plus he's screwing himself out of transportation afterwards. So um, as we started to kind of define the bike and what was appropriate for it versus not um, really uh, trying to bridge the survival gameplay pillar or the, the, the theme of the game being survival was something that I'm like, at a certain point, it dawned on me, the bike is essential for survival. The bike is essential for survival. What does that mean? It means, okay, yeah, you need your, you know, if you don't have your bike, it's going to be really dangerous out there. Um, oh, you know what? If I, if the only way for you to reload all of your ammo at once out in the field is from a stash on the back of your bike, there you go. Um, you know, having, having to have your bike and sufficient fuel to, and have it be repaired to make it to a, an encampment, to fast travel somewhere. You know, all these things were, were, 
counterintuitive choices that you don't make for a lot. Like I, if you, if you, if you would have told me before I made Days Gone that I would have made those choices, I would have said, get out of here. But <laughs> in Days Gone, given all these parameters, it made perfect sense. And, and more importantly, it filled me with confidence knowing that like this is the right thing to do because um, every designer I talk to, every, everybody I talk to who has to implement this, it's going to fight me on it. And I'm going to I'm gonna have to believe in it. And, and I did because it, it had that governing principle of the bike is essential for survival. And, and where that really kind of helped me. So these weren't super tough fights, by the way, <laughs> you know, but there's always <laughs> resistance that you're getting. Mm-hmm. But there, there was a moment, again, maybe like nine to 10 months before, before launching that um, I'm embarrassed. I didn't, didn't think of this beforehand, but a lot of the feedback we were getting from, from the focus test people were, man, this save game sucks. Like uh, I died and I respond here and it's not what I, where I thought I should be. This game's terrible. And, you know, in my opinion, the, the game was actually bending over backwards behind the scenes to autosave for players and put them back in the best possible state. It was doing a great job. But when you are only 90% accurate, that's not enough. So that, that final 10% was, was basically enough to kind of tell people that it all sucked. And uh, we had the same user test people from Gorilla, uh, Horizon Zero Dawn, the same, you know, the same researchers were in charge of our game that had kind of led Horizon. And they couldn't share information with us without permission from, from Gorilla. But um, in, we were getting this feedback and, and I, I just asked them, I'm like, how do people feel about the campfires in, in Horizon? Uh, and, and they're like, oh, they fucking love those. Once they loved them and they stopped complaining about the save games because they were the ones responsible for it. And I'm like, that's what we got to do. <laughs> you know, mm. but, but I can't steal, I can't steal the fires from, from horizon. I'm like, Oh, but I got this motorcycle. I, I can make it a virtual fire that that's the only place you can save at. And um, it, it's, I should have thought about that sooner. You know, I really should have rolled that into the bike is essential for survival, but moving the save game to a manual input that the player had to do at the bike um, saved us all of the problems that came with disappointing some people on save games, but it also just, it really strengthened the importance of the bike and, and made it the center of a lot of the survival elements. And, and I, I call it a survival game, but we don't, and we even early on had Deacon eating food and drinking water and it was just, it didn't read, it didn't land well. It was just, it came off as pretty kludgy that, you know, he's a candy bar or something and he, all of a sudden he just got sh- all the, the bullets go away. Like, you know, it's, and, and I know that's fine for games, but it just didn't, it didn't feel fine for us. It, but, but I knew we needed survival stuff and I'm like, let's push it all onto the bike, you know? So that, and that's why you have to repair the bike and you have, and why you have to take care of the gas. And um, yeah. So the, all the decisions about the bike and kind of pushing things towards that is one, is one of the things that, you know, before I did it, I never would have thought I, I, I would ever make those decisions, but I'm really, really satisfied and, and, and happy with how, how, you know, how much I stuck to my guns. And, and I think that ultimately what that meant was Days Gone is a great game. It's a flawed game. It's whatever, but it, it, when it, why it's great for the, for the people who think it's great is because of the adherence to the principles that I'm talking about, you know, by, by Garvin being so strong-willed with his, with the journey that he's on. Cause he got a lot of guff and a lot of, you know, a lot of people saying, what about this? What about that? And, you know, he had a vision and he stuck to it. He thought, I mean, he thought it through, like, I mean, there, there was no end he hadn't accounted for. And on the, on the design side, we were doing that as much as possible, just trying to kind of figure out like every decision, we're not making any decisions randomly. We're not including something from another game just because we're going to bring things in from other games that make sense for this fantasy and this experience that we're trying to build or things that solve problems for us, like the horizon um, campfire. So, um, yeah, I'm really I'm really proud of just uh, how the game came together because it was so it took so long, but also all these choices that made the game small 
made it they are what made it big you know like it, it spoke to you in a way that because we couldn't compete with all of the pyrotechnics and explosions from a far cry 3 you know, far, a far cry game so we just had to kind of go with something a much more relatable and you know th- you know things kind of like that were some d- other decisions were you can't blind fire on the bike you know like you can't just shoot from the you can't blind fire from cover you can't blind fire uh after you know when a horde is chasing you and that was the thing that people bugged me for for like five years and when are we gonna get blind fire i'm like we're not <laughs> you know what i mean like we're we're trying to we're trying to sell a world of limited ammo but we really can't we, we have infinite ammo so we just need to make players kind of we need to make them spend bullets hard you know it make it difficult for them to spend bullets to to use them and you could either shoot in the open world use your guns too much you're going to create too much noise you're going to bring more trouble down on you um you know so that that kind of satisfied one part of it but the shooting but you know the blind firing just to me kind of said bullets are infinite and that was tonally the wrong thing to do so a lot of little decisions like that i'm, I'm just really proud of because i they, they were they were principled, you know. They're they're driven from principles. There was oftentimes a fight to kind of make you know get everybody on board with it. But I think that it came together in this nice kind of recipe at the end. Uh, you mentioned John Galvin just a second ago. You've worked with him since Siphon Filter back in what 1999. What made the two of you such a great team? You know, um, it's a great question. I think that we are. I mean, we're we're, we're similar in some ways and, and vastly different. But both of us have relatively thick skin um thin skin for some things but for but for brutal honesty and truth um there's john is a guy who he loves a good he loves a good fight and he's a pretty he's a really accomplished guy and he will let you know a, a junior artist on day one come in and challenge everything that he's every decision that he's made and he john would would happily engage in that argument and, and can oftentimes convince people so um he, he's just somebody who's, uh, he's a, he's a force of nature. He can accomplish a lot by himself. He's got a lot of great ideas. Um, it, in, in, we just, we riff together really well. Like he doesn't take most of my ideas, but every now and then I, I, I kind of plant a seed that, uh, you know, gets in there and it, and it kind of works out. Um, but, but really the thing that I really love about John is just his, he's got a healthy ego, like, like we all do, but he also doesn't at the same time too. He doesn't, you know, he's, it, it, it's a really weird dichotomy, but, um, that's what I love about him. Like, I think some of the, the biggest fights I've ever had with a person in my life have been with John, but some of the best moments I've ever had have been with John after that, you know? So it's, a. Uh, I just think that we get along because we, we both um, can be super honest with one another. Yeah. The Days Gone fan community is hands down the best gaming community out there. And I, I hope you know how much love there is for the game you created. What do you want to say to the ever growing community of fans? Thank you. Uh, I mean, the Days Gone fans are the best fans in my in my book. It's, you know, every, obviously every game's got them, but there, but there's something about Days Gone that um, I was just expecting to get hammered on social media, you know, because trolls are out there and there's been very little of that. And there's just been a, you know, in, anytime that I express like just even in my personal life or, or in, in my career, if I, if I tweet something, they just swarm and, and they come in and, you know, they, they support me or build me up or, or whatever. And, and then just even, even with the ones that don't engage with me. Yeah. We, we touched a lot of people and it's really nice to see um, just to see somebody kind of respond to the work that we've created and, and be such good people about it. You know what I mean? Like there's, you, you hop into a Facebook thread. Sometimes you'll see that game, you know, this other game sucks. Days gone is great. Like, you know, it's, they're pretty good people. And it's, I, I stand by my initial statement. Days Gone fans are the best. They, they just, they seem to be really good people that 
obviously love my game. That makes me like them. <laughs> you know, but <laughs> people but, of good uh, taste. <laughs> they were they were people who gave the game a shot. I think that this is the important thing. Yeah. They're the people who judged it on their own. They didn't listen to the reviews necessarily, or maybe the re- you know I, I I don't know exactly, but they uh, they stuck with it and they appreciated what we what we had. It's everything that the game is isn't that obvious in the first ten hours. You really have to kind of sink into it and then let it let it kind of take hold, and and that's what all these people did. They you know they they had faith in us and they they gave it enough time to kind of see the fruits of our labor. Mm-hmm. All right, I've got one last question for you. If you found yourself in the world of Days Gone, how would you fare, and which camp would you join? Awesome question. Um, I would fare very well for a while. Uh, <laughs> I would, you know, <laughs> you said I, that with it, such confidence. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I what I would do is, you know, I uh, I talk about this fantasy that we all have about about the apocalypse and what we would do and, and whatever. And you know, right away, I think that I would know, I would know that you have to be hardcore, that you have to do some stuff that you probably you probably wouldn't do. I, I know enough about that. Whether I could do it or not, who knows? But um, I would probably try to find some place. I would do one of two things. I would either no. Here's what I would do. I would try to be Iron Mike. And then fail so miserably, I'd probably wind up like Copeland. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I would start with the best intentions. Be <laughs> Iron Mike in your head, but everyone else is like, oh, yeah, you Copeland know, starting out as that, you know, and, and then just is, you know, it, I, I don't know. It's, uh, I don't really know who I would be, but um, I would, I would definitely think that I was Iron Mike, but I think that the apocalypse would tell me about myself and I would learn who I really was. Am I a ripper or am I, am I, uh, am I schizo? Am I part of the militia? You know, what am I? But, um, I definitely would try to build a community of people that all had great skills. And um, more importantly, uh, you'd, we'd have to kill all the tall people because they need too many calories. So I've, <laughs> I've, I've researched the internet and I know that if you kill all the tall guys, you don't need the tall guys to fight tall guys because you've killed them all. Uh, and then there's more protein to go around for everybody. <laughs> Wait, are you talking about cannibalism? No, are you going to no, no. eat I'm all the tall people? The, I'm just saying, like, if we kill a deer and some guy comes in and he's got he needs three thousand calories a day, and the rest of us need fifteen, that's a problem. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah, it's controversial, but um, yeah, I I would actually once once the adrenaline rush wore off of living in the apocalypse, I would just be really bored. Uh, I'm a, I'm a city boy. Uh, I love all the creature comforts that we have, and it would be really it would be rough to lose those. So. Uh, that's why I like to keep it in the fantasy space, not the reality space. But I think that there would be no other kind of test to tell you who you were as a person than the apocalypse. Right. Okay. A few quick reminders before we wrap up. You can support the Days Gone podcast via buymeacoffee.com slash daysgonepod. All contributions are greatly appreciated and really help with the overhead costs of running the podcast. And I want to give a big shout out to James Guan for contributing. It is greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Also, don't forget to like, subscribe, and share so more people can find the show. Jeff, on behalf of everyone listening to this, thank you for talking with me today. And a huge thank you for making a game that has touched so many hearts and quite literally changed people's lives, myself included. You are an absolute legend. Ah, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And again, congratulations on the show. Thank you for doing this. It's a great resource. And um, I appreciate what you're putting back into the community for. So best of luck and, and congratulations. You can email me your thoughts, comments, opinions, and counter-arguments at daysgonepod at gmail.com. You can also find me moderating the Days Gone subreddit. Thanks for listening. Weaver out. Weaver out.